Good morning, everyone. Uh, Daniel gave a great little introduction for me uh, earlier, which I appreciate. The only thing that I would add to it is uh, my wonderful wife, Becca, and I is, Becca's sitting right there in the second row. We've been going to Kindred for about a year now this summer, have really enjoyed it. Um, also, we're expecting our first baby, a little girl, uh, in November, and so I think that's probably like the most exciting thing about me right now. Um, she was apparently kicking all the way through the beginning of the service, so hopefully that means that the spirit is, is moving. Um, I've really missed preaching since I've been um, back in school the past few years, and I'm thankful that Daniel asked me to step in this Sunday. I'm excited to consider together what God might have to speak to us today through his word. But before we begin, would you please pray with me? Dear Lord God, we thank you for gathering your church here this morning, for the wonderful worship led by Ty and the band, and for the chance to hear how your spirit might speak into our lives this week. In the coming moments, if anything that I say by your spirit is useful, life-giving, and true, I pray that it would find root in the hearts of your people and that you would keep it in the forefront of their minds. If anything that I say misses the mark or is not true to you or to your character, I ask that you would just cover everybody's ears and it would fall harmlessly to the floor. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As Ty mentioned earlier, we are in the third week of a sermon series featuring Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be?, and in this series, through the lyrics of these hymns, we have been exploring some of the more, um, some of the more theologically intense aspects of the Christian faith. If you can remember back to the first week in the series, Daniel gave us some, some building blocks, some ways to begin thinking about the meaning of the cross. The atonement is the million-dollar word for it. How Jesus' death on the cross reconciled humanity to God. And this morning, I want to consider the same kind of question, but from a, from a slightly different angle. I want us to think about the meaning of the cross as, um, as like a visual symbol, and this is what I mean by that. If you grew up in the Christian church, or really if you have any experience in the church at all, you'll have noticed that we Christians plaster crosses everywhere. A cross, a cross is the centerpiece of every sanctuary. We stitch crosses into our clothing. We wear them around our necks. There's this one Christian holiday. It's one of the stranger ones where we literally draw crosses on each other's foreheads with ashes on Ash Wednesday. The symbol of the cross is absolutely everywhere. You might call it Christianity's logo. With just two lines, you can represent a 2,000-year-old faith. And logos, logos are significant. They tell you something really important about whatever group, company, or society that they represent. Um, do you all know Amazon's logo? Can you picture Amazon's logo in your head? That's sort of a silly question. They've essentially taken over the entire world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the word Amazon, and it's got the arrow pointing from the A, swooping down to the Z in the middle. And I read an article once about the thought process behind it. When designing their logo, Amazon wanted to be known for two things. First, they wanted to be known as the place where you went to buy absolutely everything. Last week on Amazon, and this is 100% true, I brought a professional-grade fly trap, uh, since returned, that was an impulse buy, and I bought a, uh, a book on 19th century German biblical scholarship. So absolutely everything is on Amazon, A to Z. The other thing, the other thing they wanted to be known for was top-notch customer service. Shopping on Amazon should make you happy. And that's why the arrow is made to look like a smile swooshing below the word. When you see their logo, Amazon wants you to picture just joyously buying everything that you could possibly want, whether or not you need it. And so our question for this morning is what does or maybe what should the symbol of the cross represent to people? What should we think about when we see the cross in our worship services, on our bumper stickers, or drawn on somebody's forehead with ashes? These are important questions because in a lot of ways the cross is an incredibly strange logo. 
Amazon's logo makes sense whether you love it or hate it. Shop and be happy. We get that. But the Roman cross um, was one of the most barbaric and violent instruments of punishment that humanity had ever thought of. In its own time, it represented the brutal oppression of an all-powerful and violent empire, the Roman Empire. Um, it's a very violent thing to have as your logo. And so how in the world could it possibly be an appropriate representation for a faith that we believe is peaceful, inclusive, and loving? What is the symbol of the cross trying to communicate to the world? To begin at least partially answering these questions, we need to turn towards the biblical text that Daniel read for us just a few moments ago. Uh, you might want to pull the bulletin back up if you want to, to follow along. This passage is from the book of Hebrews, and I would just be curious to know, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, just think about it, but did this sound like familiar to you or unfamiliar to you? Did it make sense to you? Because uh, I think the, the last verse that we read, verse 22, it sounds kind of nice. There's some words that sound mostly familiar to us, a genuine heart, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, nothing too strange there, but the preceding verses have some really strange stuff in them. There's something about entering the Holy of Holies, there's a curtain that is also somehow Christ's body. Jesus is called the great high priest, which might sound like vaguely Catholic to some of us, but that's essentially it. And the reason for some of these more obscure concepts and the reason why these verses might be a bit hard to follow is because in this section of the letter, the author of Hebrews is doing some, he's doing some pretty intense and complicated theological work. Uh, you might know or you might remember that Christianity at its inception was an offshoot of Judaism. Figures like Peter and the Apostle Paul believed that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah, come to fulfill the Hebrew scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament. And much of the New Testament, especially the epistles, the letters, of which Hebrews is one of them, they're concerned with establishing this connection, trying to show how the faith of the Israelites, as it was practiced from the time of Abraham all the way up to first century Rome, how that faith led to and was culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is engaged in this, pro this project. Um, more specifically, he's trying to explain in the section that we read for today how the Israelite practice of animal sacrifice is related to the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, animal sacrifice is not a phrase that gets people out of bed on Sunday mornings. Um, and yes, in order to understand this section of Hebrews and to figure out how all of this relates to the cross and to our own lives, we're going to have to briefly delve further into some of the weirder and less like immediately palatable portions of our Bible. Like Daniel mentioned, I am currently studying for my doctorate in Old Testament studies, and so thinking about the weird and complicated portions of the Bible is, is literally what gets me up in the morning. Um, but I realize it's not everybody's cup of tea, so I'm going to be as succinct as possible, and I'd like to assure you on the front end that I firmly believe there is some good and life-giving news for all of us on the other side. I think we need to start by thinking briefly about the biblical concept of sin. Sin is a concept, also not a crowd-pleaser. Maybe not as bad as animal sacrifice, but it's up there. And, and understandably so, because a lot of people have bad memories and associations with this concept. Um, religious people often use weighty words like sin as a weapon, as a way of denigrating, often hypocritically, certain people or even certain kinds of people. And a lot of us growing up, I think, were taught a very simplistic and highly individualistic understanding of sin that went something like this. In the Bible, there's a list of things that you should not do. I think it's in one of the weird books like Leviticus. And if you do these things, many of which seem kind of strange or inconsequential, that is bad. It is deserving of punishment and maybe even heard that God was, was angry at, at you specifically. And this understanding of sin is full of so many half, really more like one quarter truths 
that it's really not that helpful, especially in how it reflects the highly individualistic nature of 21st century American culture and society. In our contemporary culture, we have so much trouble thinking about sin outside of the realm of individual responsibility. Um, we are, the, after all, the bootstraps country, the bootstraps nation. We like to think of people succeeding or failing on their own merits, and thus we tend to use concepts like personal guilt and personal debt in order to understand sin and wrongdoing and even suffering sometimes. But the Bible has a much more nuanced and, and this is key, a much more communal understanding of sin. Personal responsibility is part of it, but the Bible recognizes that sin and brokenness is something that transcends the individual, that can get instantiated into society, built into systems. It's something that people both participate in, but also are harmed by. And that's why, along with something like the Ten Commandments, which I'm assuming we're probably more familiar with, the Bible also contains things like the preaching of the prophet Amos, which um, includes a really nuanced denunciation of, of unjust economic systems. And it also has stories like the patriarchs in Genesis, which is a, a heartbreaking portrayal of how selfishness and, and pride can corrupt relationships, uh, both within human families and between God and humanity. And in the Bible, um, God hates sin. But not because God is a fastidious rule follower that is trying to entrap people, but rather because God loves this world and God loves the people in this world. And God can't stand to see them corrupted and suffering under the disease of sin. Um, in fact, if I was to simplify to the extreme, the Bible could potentially be described as a story about how God is working to rid God's world of sin and suffering without getting rid of the world and the people within it, despite how intertwined we are with it. Uh, there's a common and I think helpful metaphor that the Bible is the story of God trying to treat the cancer without losing the patient. And the way that ancient Israel as a society and as a faith dealt with this nuanced understanding of sin, which involved individual shortcomings, but also included the much more communal and amorphous aspects of sin, uh, the way they dealt through it was, with, was through a system of animal sacrifice. At certain times during the year, an ancient Israelite would bring an offering, sometimes a part of their harvest, like wheat or grain, but often an animal, like a, a sheep or a dove. They'd bring it to the temple, and a priest would offer it as a sacrifice on behalf of the Israelite, thereby allowing him or her to enter the temple to worship. Without getting too far into the weeds, the belief was essentially that, that somehow the animal absorbed the sin and the brokenness and the guilt in the act of sacrifice. The animal took the sin onto itself, and in doing so allowed the person to enter the temple, to be in the presence of God, and to be restored to right relationship with the community and with, the, with God. And I'm going to acknowledge on the front end, this is a foreign concept to us. It sounds bizarre and distasteful. It's from, it's from a symbolic world and a symbolic logic that we no longer share as a society. And I get that. I don't want to downplay that. Um, as an Old Testament scholar in training, I would say. I would urge us, however, to approach the topic with what I like to call um, cultural humility. It's, it's easy for us to look back at a thousand-year-old ancient culture and conclude that, that it was backwards and primitive. Thank goodness we sophisticated 21st century people don't think that way or act that way anymore. Um, and that's an understandable reaction. I do think it's worth considering what aspects of our own culture might be equally or even, or even more bizarre and repellent from the perspective of another era in history. For instance, I suspect that an ancient Israelite, if they could gaze through time and space to the year 2023, might be disgusted by the concept of the $5 Costco rotisserie chicken, um, which let me just say on the front end, I love and I eat regularly. But here's what I mean. 
Um, ancient Israelite culture, like most cult, ancient cultures, was a subsistence agriculture society, meaning they spent the vast majority of their day just gathering, growing, or raising their next meal. When they were occasionally able to eat meat, it was an event. They praised God. They ate absolutely everything, including the vast majority of sacrificial animals, by the way. Nothing went to waste. In general, they just lived in a much more natural and sustainable relationship with their surroundings and with the animals that fed them. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever guilted you into watching a documentary like Food, Inc. or Cowspiracy, uh, but if they have, then you are already aware of the, the insane amount of waste and animal suffering that lies behind crazy cheap animal products like the Costco $5 rotisserie chicken. Um, these poor chickens are bred so fat they can barely turn around before they're led to the slaughterhouse. Um, I don't have to think about any of that, though, because I just walk in there on a Wednesday evening, pick up that little box that smells so, so good. Uh, I eat probably half of it. I'll think about saving the rest for my, a soup or something, but, I mean, I'm probably just going to throw it out because it was only $5. And this entire situation would be incomprehensible to an ancient Israelite who viewed every animal that they were able to eat as a unique gift from God. If they could wrap their minds around it, I do think that they would be just as disturbed as we are in hearing about their system of animal sacrifice. Um, again, I say this is someone who loves the Costco $5 chicken. This is a, this is a moral inconsistency that I have not gotten around to, to ironing out or to addressing. And the point here, the point here is not to ruin everybody's favorite emergency weeknight meal. Um, I just wanted to, us to encourage us, um, rather than immediately dismissing stuff from ancient cultures that sounds really weird to us, to instead have some cultural humility, to acknowledge that we modern people maybe don't necessarily have everything figured out, and to open up our eyes to, to learning from even some of the stranger stuff that we find in ancient cultures like Israel's. So, all right, so what might we be able to learn from something as bizarre as the Israelite sacrificial system? Um, well, in an earlier part of the letter to the, to the church, it, to the Hebrews, the author gives us a hint. Um, in chapter 10, the author points out that the sacrifices were a reminder of sin to the people. This also does not sound great initially, but we should keep in mind that two of the key features of this sacrificial system uh, were that it was, it was ubiquitous across all portions of society and that it was public. Everyone was required to offer sacrifices, the farmers, the shepherds, but also the priests, also the soldiers, and even especially actually the king. There were no exceptions for power, for wealth, or for status. Additionally, the admission and the covering of sins was a, was a public activity. You couldn't just show up and be like, oh, no, I actually, I took care of that at home. It's, I'm all good. We're good to go. Um, the, and the point of this was not to make everyone feel bad about themselves all the time, but rather to, to avoid a system in which the rich and the powerful followed a different set of rules than everybody else, and to avoid a situation where uh, the reality of sin and brokenness is not out in public. It is allowed to hide. It's allowed to seep below the surface of society and thereby giving off the appearance of justice and righteousness while allowing injustice and wrongdoing to, to sort of rot out the culture from within. And I, I do think that our society sometimes has a problem with pushing sin and brokenness out of the public sphere where we don't have to think about it or deal with it. The Costco chicken is just one good example. I don't have to reckon with the amount of animal suffering and waste in the meat industry. I just get that warm box that, that smells really, really good. Um, another example, there's a recent article from the New York Times that I read this past week that was reporting on the prevalence of dark money. Um, dark money is money contributed to campaigns, to campaigns and political causes that can't be traced back to public donors, and it has absolutely overwhelmed American politics. And um, 
They also mentioned that in this particular regard, there was not a significant difference between the two parties. Uh, this system obviously has greatly benefited those with connections to wealth and power, and uh, these untraceable funds also allow politicians and public figures to, to say whatever they want in public, to present themselves as if they care about all of the right things while actually they're beholden to private interests of their untraceable donors. And so I do think public awareness of and reckoning with the problems in society in a way that doesn't allow easy outs for the wealthy and the powerful is something that I think we could learn from the ancient Israelites. All right, uh, thank you for indulging my Old Testament nerddom. Let's turn back to the passage from Hebrews this morning. We're going to see if it makes more sense now, and we're going to see what all this has to do with Jesus and with the cross. Just to remind you, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, again, feel free to follow along on the online bulletin if you'd like to, goes like this. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence that we can enter the Holy of Holies by means of Jesus' blood through a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, which is his body. And we have a great high priest over God's house. Okay, so now the Holy of Holies was the innermost part of the Israelite temple, where God's presence resided most fully and powerfully. It was set off by a thick curtain. Only the high priest was allowed to enter once a year after a special festival and a special sacrifice. So you see, the New Testament authors, including the author of Hebrews, believed that the life and death of Jesus Though it was related to the Israelite sacrificial practices, it went beyond them. It accomplished something much more powerful and much more permanent than they were capable of. The, the sacrifices did their job and their time and place, but they were like a temporary treatment that offered relief from symptoms without curing the underlying disease. But then Jesus, God himself, came into the world. He lived a truly righteous life. And on the cross, he allowed the sin and the brokenness of the world and of humanity to overwhelm him to allow them to, to exhaust their powers on him. Through Jesus, God took the sin and brokenness of the world into God's own being in a way that the sheep and doves simply never could. And then in the resurrection three days later, Jesus declared victory over sin and death. God announced that the disease had been cured and treated at its very source. The final verse in Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, which we've been featuring in the sermon series and which we sang just a few moments ago, the final verse goes like this. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. This verse of the hymn really illustrates very clearly two effects of the cross that the author of Hebrews is trying to describe in our scripture reading, and that's forgiveness and access to God's presence. No condemnation now I dread. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, our sin and the, the sin of the world is forgiven fully, completely, and finally. There's no longer any need to offer animals as a temporary covering for sin because sin's power and effects were fully exhausted in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne. Furthermore, because of the cross, God's presence is no longer hidden behind a curtain, and it no longer requires the help of a priest to access it. On the cross, God dealt with sin and brokenness, and therefore we enjoy forgiveness and the ability to enter into God's presence. So, what should we think about when we see the symbol of the cross? All over the place in the Christian faith. What is this strange, strange logo attempting to communicate to us and to the world? Um, lots and lots of different things, potentially, but I'm going to offer just two based on our discussion here this morning. Firstly, like the public sacrifices of ancient Israel, the cross reminds us that sin and brokenness are real. 
The violence of the image is not incidental. The ideal human came into the world and the world rejected him. And again, the point of this is not to make us feel badly about ourselves, but to make us feel undue shame and guilt, but rather to remind us that all is not as it should be, to remind us that the world and human society and we ourselves are flawed and in need of healing. And this is important because societies and worldviews that pretend these things don't exist or that, or that shove them below the surface, that pretend the $5 Costco chickens come without any cost whatsoever, um, that just pretend everything is fine, those are, those are not utopias. They've simply outsourced the effects of sin and brokenness, or at least they've tried to. They've tried to kind of corner it off to discrete and contained areas that we don't have to think about, or at least we can think about them as little as possible. And um, I don't, that's not a path towards healing. Ignoring the problem has never led anybody to a solution. But secondly, the cross also reminds us that God has dealt with sin fully and finally. The greatest act of love in the history of the universe took place when God, through Jesus Christ, took on the role of the sacrificial lamb, a form of sacrifice that was able to fully exhaust the powers of sin and death. Um, And though we still see the effects of sin and death in the world around us, we Christians believe this is temporary. C.S. Lewis has a great quote here. He described the powers of sin and death after the victory of Jesus on the cross as like a flailing, as the flailing violence of an army that knows its commander has been defeated and that its days are numbered. In the meantime, we are able to worship God fully and directly without the barriers of a thick curtain or the mediation of a high priest. And the second point is also crucial because though our culture sometimes tends to dismiss the reality of sin and death and their power. On the other end of the spectrum, there's also sometimes a a spiraling cynicism and and pessimism. Um, The church and the government are full of hypocrites. The the climate is warming. Um, I myself seem to be just making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Maybe we need to just throw in the towel. Um, As Christians, we fully emphasize with these concerns, but we don't follow the world into hopelessness because God has taken decisive action against sin and death because the disease has been treated at its very source, and because one day the healing will be complete when Christ returns and makes all things new. So Amazon's logo, with its smiley arrow that points from A to Z, it's designed to make you think happily about buying everything that you could possibly think of, like a professional-grade flytrap, whether or not you need it. Um, Christianity's logo, so to speak, the cross, should, I think, whenever you see it in the sanctuary or on a necklace or a bumper sticker, fill you with what I like to think of as a mature hope, um, it's mature as opposed to naive hope because it recognizes the sin and brokenness in the world. Um, a humanity and a, and a world that would subject someone like Jesus to a fate like a cross is in need of a savior. But this clear-sightedness should not be allowed to spiral into irredeemable cynicism. It is a mature hope because although sin and brokenness are real, God has dealt with them. God, in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, took sin and brokenness and death into God's own being. It exhausted its powers on him, and then God triumphed over it in the resurrection three days later. And friends, I think the world needs to hear about this mature hope. I think we are often offered the choice of either naive optimism or crushing pessimism, and neither of these options are satisfying or life-giving. The message of the cross, the strangest of logos, can, I think, offer something much more compelling. As Christians, we're not called to stick our heads into the sand. We are aware of the problems in this world, in the church, and even in ourselves. But in the words of Charles Wesley and the author of Hebrews, because of the cross, we dread no condemnation. And we will, when God has closed the curtains on history, we'll approach the throne in full confidence of our faith with our bodies sprinkled clean with pure water. Would you please pray with me? Dear Lord, dear Lord God, um, the world is often a wonderful and amazing place. 
It's also often tragic and full of sadness. People, including ourselves, are often thoughtful, compassionate, and loving, but can also be cruel and hurting ourselves and others. We're thankful this morning, God, for the cross, which helps us understand and live within both of these realities. The sin and suffering that we see throughout history in our own lives, it's not a mirage, it's real. But you, God, have dealt with it. And one day, Jesus will make all things new. Until then, God, we ask that you would fill us with mature hope. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.